Welcome to First Fuel, a podcast bringing you perspectives on the role of energy efficiency, energy management and demand response in the energy transition taking place in Australia and around the world. I'm Luke Menzel, CEO of the Energy Efficiency Council, and this week I'm joined by Corey Diamond. Corey is Executive Director at Efficiency Canada, Canada's national voice for an energy efficient economy. Welcome, Corey. Well, good to see you, Luke. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Um, how are you doing there in Toronto? Oh, good. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's the summer side of life here almost. So, uh, you know, people are getting out of their houses, starting to see each other again. We're almost at a lockdown here in Toronto. So definitely hope on the horizon and uh, people feeling good. I'm really glad. I'm really glad. I know it's been a it's been a pretty tough year there in North America, including in Canada. So um, it, you've been in our thoughts, and it's um, it's good to hear that uh, things are on the upswing. Yeah, appreciate that. So, uh, Corey, not everyone listening will be familiar with efficiency. Canada, which I know has a, a long and, and proud history, but has also gone through some changes recently. I thought it might be helpful if you gave us a bit of background on the organization and its role. Yeah, so we're actually a, a research-based organization um, uh, housed at Carleton University, which is a university in Ottawa, Canada, which is uh, Canada's capital. And um, we grew out of a previous organization that had been around for about 20 years called the Canadian Energy Efficiency Alliance. Uh, but in 2018, uh, the research center was set up at Carleton, and uh, we quickly jumped into action and, and, and filled a sort of a gaping hole in Canada. There really wasn't a, a full-time voice on energy efficiency policy. There were mm. people doing things kind of on the side and the alliance was very active from a kind of an industry association, but no one was really doing the research that was required to kind of really push the agenda um, at all three levels of government. So we quickly got set up in 2018 and, uh, and, and, and we basically do three things. So I, I mentioned the research piece. So housed at a university, we uh, have access to students and, and faculty on, on, you know, trying to basically understand what are the, the best policies for Canada on energy efficiency. Um, we do a lot of communications efforts. So what, what we're trying to do is kind of reframe the story of energy efficiency beyond it just being, you know, save energy, save money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that energy efficiency is a, is a lever not only for climate action, but also for economic development for Canada and also more and more these days for, for social equity and social justice. Uh, so we try to tell the stories of that the people behind it. And then the third piece is really our engagement area where we're really trying to kind of organize and mobilize the sector. There's over 400,000 people that work in energy efficiency in Canada and um, and they don't have like kind of a concerted voice to kind of come together. So we make it easy for them to to tell their stories and to get active politically and essentially kind of create a, a you know, a solid political constituency so that uh, policymakers listen to us. When uh, Efficiency Canada was formed, what was the what was the landscape there in, in, in Canada in terms of energy efficiency? How prominent was it in the political conversation, you know, um, as an incoming executive director of a new organisation, did you rate your, your job of elevating energy efficiency as topic as, as, as easy, medium or, or hard? <laughs> I still think it's hard every single day, but... Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, Canada was kind of middle of the pack. We were a bit higher in an average in the middle of the pack. If you look at the ACEEE, did their uh, used to do their international scorecard every couple of years, and yep. we, we ranked tenth. And um, so that you know that was good. Um, most of the action in 2018 when we started was um, was happening at the provincial level, and, and still very much uh, uh, the provinces are have regulatory kind of jurisdiction over energy efficiency. Um, and at the federal level. 
I, I guess a lot of the oxygen around climate action um, during that time was really taken up by by this political football of carbon pricing. And so energy efficiency either gained from that when carbon pricing, you know, if you were on that side, or it suffered considerably if you were on, you know, if the policymakers were on the other side. So so that that became kind of a distraction, I think, for concerted effort. And it was only really in the last couple of years that we really started to see a lot of especially federal action and federal investment in energy efficiency as well as the provinces really kind of ramping up their efforts too. I think it's going to be a theme in our, our conversation today that there's uh, there's a little bit of a mirror universe element between uh, <laughs> Australia and Canada on all kinds yeah. of energy and climate issues, uh, including energy efficiency. Obviously, we had our, our Barney around a carbon price earlier in the last decade, and oh, I think we we uh, have the somewhat dubious distinction, Corey, of being, being the first uh, country in the world to repeal a carbon price, uh, having instituted <laughs> it. Um, yeah. But, I mean, we've had, a, we've had a similar dynamic, I suppose, here in Australia around the, the back and forth around uh, not so much carbon pricing, which is, is kind of off the political radar um, at, at this point in Australia, but but certainly um, coal versus renewables, and, and now it's uh, it's almost renewables versus gas, this kind of very binary conversations about right. you know, supply side transition, um, which is obviously an important, a very, very crucial conversation to have, but it tends to crowd out a whole bunch of um, equally important um, conversations out, out, out of... Uh, out of the public domain and energy efficiency is right. one of them and you know there's a there, there are things outside of energy which are crucial for that decarbonisation journey as well so it sounds like there's yeah. similarities in that respect as well yeah absolutely and i think the other similarity is that we have we both have very resource intensive industries mm. which have um you know traditionally been the bedrock of of our economies and that's changing and it's a really hard change and um it becomes like you say by it becomes you either support the oil and gas sector or you don't. And, you know, reality is not that binary. And so, um, but I do think, you know, I've been doing this. Um, <laughs> I was reflecting the other day. I've been doing this since I was 17 years old, not energy efficiency, but in the, in the, in, in the environmental space since, since I was in high school, I've never seen the kind of momentum that I've seen right now mm. on climate issues. And so, um, it, it, you know, we'll hold on for dear Mike as long as we can during this momentum, because I do think that the, there, there is growing recognition around how serious the crisis is and that now, no matter what political stripe, political parties are, are all coming around to uh, committing to a net zero economy and, and figuring out exactly what that means. And I think all of them have, have realized, you know, partly because of our work, um, but lots of other people talking about it, too, that that there is no pathway to that net zero without aggressive energy efficiency. Yep. And so it didn't used to be like that, but now we're starting to see that recognition. And it's nice to see people arguing about the how and not just like, you know, we have to do it or yes or no. It's like, how are we going to do it? Okay. That's a, that's a good debate. That's a healthy debate. Yeah, that is a healthy debate. I'm interested in your comment that um, a lot of the activity, you know, certainly um, in, at that point in 2018, when Efficiency Canada was formed, was being driven at the, at the pr- provincial level, yeah. which is again, 
again, is an analogue for the states. We've got a, we've got certainly a couple of leading states and the largest states here in Australia, um, New South Wales and Victoria, where um, there is an awful lot of um, policy architecture and, and funding and kind of expertise on in energy efficiency and energy management. Is it the same sort of uh, dynamic there in Canada that there's there's some some leaders in a state level or a provincial level that has been, have been driving the the conversation? Yeah, absolutely. So we see, um, you know, be, um, provinces like British Columbia, which is on our West Coast, have been very active for a number of years. Um, Quebec as well has been extremely active. Nova Scotia has uh, been a leader in programs. Uh, and then, yeah, certainly there's laggard uh, provinces who who don't have the regulatory structure. Um, I remember a, a colleague of ours um, in Alberta uh, who uh, was successful after many years of fighting, finally getting uh, energy an energy efficiency regime you know, paid for through you know, different ways, but mainly through carbon pricing so that you can actually provide rebates and programs and things to people. And the way he did it was he showed the regulators a map <laughs> of every jurisdiction in North America and their energy efficiency regime. And in Alberta, there was a big gaping hole. <laughs> they were the only one. <laughs> now, funny enough, since then, they ramped up like crazy and got amazing savings, ra- uh, you yeah. know, rocketed up to number five in our, in our, uh, uh, our ranking. And then a uh, new government came in and canceled it. But um, so you get those kinds of things where, you know, you see some momentum and you get some wins and then, you know, different political strikes move in different directions so it's across the board quite quite different uh, based on the geography for sure i guess my last question in terms of uh, uh setting the scene is around the relative sophistication of policy and performance by sector i mean obviously you've got very different opportunities and barriers in in residential and commercial buildings and manufacturing and you've already already mentioned the resources sector but you know it, it, often a very in, in energy intensive just in terms of extractive industries i guess it would depend too on where it is so for example in in, in british columbia again one of their great success stories and it's actually a north american-wide success story mm-hmm. is their sophisticated kind of um uh, actually creative uh, building code and so they've set up this kind of what's called an, an energy step code that has five steps and people you know municipalities can opt in and and they did that in the face of you know pretty big opposition from entrenched interests and things like that so that was that's good to see like from a building's perspective you're starting to see kind of baked in longer term policies in some provinces and certainly Quebec also is doing some really interesting work around transportation in Canada it also depends too on the um, the energy source so as I mentioned, BC, uh, Quebec, even Ontario have almost carbon-free uh, power through through mostly hydropower. So what they can do is be more aggressive around electrification of heating and transportation and things like that. So I think we've been you know quite successful in those areas. But overall, you know, laggards. I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, we, we definitely, if you look at the provincial energy efficiency savings, you know, as 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 a percentage of their sales, um, you know, we're nowhere near where best in class would be. Let's say in you know south of us in the United States, and so um, we do an energy efficiency scorecard every year. And uh, the top prize uh, last year, I think, was uh, it was BC, but I think this, their score was fifty six out of a hundred. Mm. So, <laughs> so we're, we're tough scorers, but. But at the same time, it's, um, you know, you, you, you kind of see that there's so much more potential, even though there's some success stories, uh, certainly around, you know, utility energy savings. I think we could do a lot better. 
But I suppose as we're talking about the AC Triple E's great scorecards, um, we had Steve Nadal on the on the podcast uh, last year, and, and that was one of the topics we we covered. We needed to disclose that um, in the last international scorecard, Australia was seventeen out of twenty five, and I, I believe worst in the developed world, um, which yeah. we let everybody know about. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as yeah, yeah. You, as you'd like, imagine, get Steve on here to tell us how bad we are. Yeah, it's perfect. <laughs> so um, you know, there there is that, but there's also it, it, the the interesting thing about the international scorecard and I suppose there's an element of this in the Canadian context is that it it doesn't really dig into that state or provincial level policy Um, and so it does really focus on those on those national policies Um, it's a good segue to you know the uh, the efforts that um, Canada has been making over the last couple of years and some of the big new initiatives which no doubt will be taking into account in uh, ACEEE's next scorecard (laughs) whenever whenever it arrives Um, moving on from from 2018-2019 Obviously, we've had a big 18 months right around the world. Canada has, you know, I'll, I'll characterise it, and you can tell me if I've if I've got this right. Um, there's been a really twin driver for policy making in this space. You've obviously had um, economic recovery post COVID has been front and centre, and I think a recognition by the Canadian government that energy efficiency is, as Executive Director Birrell at the IEA would say, a, a jobs machine. Um, yeah. And so that that huge jobs multiplier we're seeing in energy efficiency upgrades, particularly in the building space, has been something that the Canadian government government has really been looking to harness and that's been associated with some big investments um, looking mm-hmm. to support retrofits both in commercial buildings and, and residential but then also Canada ramping up its ambition around climate and particularly that that 2030 target we saw at the recent global summit Prime Minister Trudeau I believe um, ramping up the 2030 commitment to 40 to 45 yeah. percent by um, right. um, re- emissions reduction different driver but same a- same outcome in a sense kind of a strong motivation for the Canadian government to double down on, on energy efficiency policy and we've seen, seen some announcements on that front recently have I, have I sort of got the got the dynamics right there in Canada yeah and I would actually add one other dynamic which happened just before all this which was you gotta you gotta give credit to Fridays of the Future and, and mm. Greta Thunberg and what they've done and 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 that big global day of action um, back in 2019 uh, happened you know a few weeks before our our election where Prime Minister Trudeau was re-elected, there was a million Canadians in the street. I don't know in my lifetime or any any in recent years where there was one million Canadians in the street around an issue. Uh, in Montreal, you had over 100,000 people in the streets. And it, it, it was just, you know, it created this situation, this context, which basically made it almost impossible for a political party or a political leader to win it without taking aggressive action. And that really has moved into, um, as we've you know, are, are coming out of COVID and economic recovery, that's still very much top of mind for Canadians. And um, which is great to see, you know, that kind of um, that, that kind of movement happen. So, you know, we were very involved, you know, kind of right place at the right time, just, you know, finally getting set up and, and you know, getting some some wind behind our sails and, um, you know, immediately started to work with the federal government on exactly those two things. How do you actually match your economic recovery and, and, uh, and, and come back better? than before and also meet these more aggressive climate actions um, and kudos to, to the government um, for not backing down on that challenge I mean it all always remains to be seen you know how 
these policies get implemented. Yep. Um, but at the same time, I'll, I'll take policy announcements and then work on implementation and wait, way, way did. <laughs> a lack of announcements. Um, so yeah, so you mentioned some of them we have, uh, most recently, uh, announced $2.6 billion for a seven year home retrofit program where everyone, uh, every household in Canada is eligible for a $5,000 grant plus a $40,000 interest free loan to undertake deeper retrofits. Um, there's a commercial energy efficiency scheme, which we're, we're, we're very excited about, which um, is through the Canada Infrastructure Bank and really trying to kind of create a market for energy efficient upgrades of commercial buildings. Uh, and then there's some industrial um, investment as well through a, a program called the Net Zero Accelerator. So all these things were kind of pulled together in, in I guess, the last kind of eight to 10 months. And uh, and if you look at the investment, it's, it's, it's a little over $10 billion that they're putting towards this, which is, mm-hmm. you know, compare that to the ha- energy efficiency, as you said, around 2018, 2019. If you added up all the provincial uh, investments in energy efficiency uh, per year, you get about one point five billion of all the provinces mm. together. Mm. Now you're adding ten billion dollars into the system, and uh, so that that's that's a huge you know impact, but also you know it's disruptive. <laughs> yep. As we say around our shop, no money, no problems. Sometimes, right? So um, <laughs> you kind of have to figure out how to manage all that. It, it's a good thing to acknowledge that I guess you know as advocates, we're we're obviously incredibly keen on on making sure that you know appropriate investments are made in this space. Um, you, we need to be mindful that a whole lot of money flowing in suddenly needs to be managed well, yeah. um, especially around the skills and capacity building. And I, I do want to spend some time digging into those those three sort of programs um, because I think they're, they're, they're all very interesting from an Australian perspective. There's sort of analogues here in some cases or there's kind of lessons that we could learn for stuff that's under consideration um, at the minute. If we start with the um, the, the, the residential retrofit initiative, um, I was very struck. Um, I believe you were actually part of a, a media announcement with the Prime Minister uh, <laughs> yeah. around this um, and it was going yeah. to that issue around skills and the... Yeah. Um, and, and the need to quickly train up um, a large number of uh, energy advisors to support the rollout of that program. Do you want to just talk about how, um, you know, industry, um, you know, you as a, as a think tank and a, a research centre and then policymakers are, are kind of thinking about how to how to manage that ramp, that quick ramp up? Yeah, so, so we were thrilled to see that. And in fact, it's something we've been talking about since the beginning of COVID and, and trying to encourage the federal government to invest in this because people were home. They had an opportunity to do training. Hmm. People's jobs were being disrupted. Could they think about different career pathways and could this be a safe landing spot? And I think the recognition then became real when they when they realized that if they're going to be announcing this 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 home retrofit program with these great incentives and have it available for seven years, that um, a big part of that was to make sure that you get an energy audit before and after so you can prove the energy savings over time. And then they looked at it and they said, man, we need more energy auditors. Like we really got to ramp up the skills here. And, uh, and at the same time, they had promised that they were going to generate a million jobs as part of this recovery. So this kind of, again, twinning that kind of climate and economic ambition uh, kind of came together. And, um, you know, it was a thrill, you know, obviously to be with the prime minister and a great profile, not only for us, but for the sector as a, mm-hmm. as a, a lever. Um, and one of the interesting things, which I thought was good, and, and we'll see how, how it comes out, 
the, the money for the energy advisors is $10 million for training uh, to bring up the 2,000 more energy advisors into the system. But they have a focus on it being uh, attracting women into the sector, attracting uh, Black and Indigenous people of color into the sector, um, people with disabilities, and really trying to diversify the sector. It is an issue. I'm sure, you know, it's the same in Australia, around the world. But, you know, in, in Canada, only about 18% of the energy efficiency sector is women. And, you know, we have we have to diversify and we have to offer opportunities to as many Canadians as we can. And here's a great opportunity around a job that is going to be around for a long time. So come in, get the skills you need to get, you know, pass the exam and then enter into a career that that is meaningful and, you know, has a good long runway. It really reminds me um, and, and some some of our listeners will, will be aware of the um, the KFW model of, of finance and the ecosystem mm-hmm. of energy advisors that sits around that. So the KFW bank, for those that aren't aware, um, is really was really the, the, the German Re- reconstruction bank, um, which has been repurposed for nation building initiatives over subsequent subsequent decades post the Second World War. And one of its big initiatives over the last fifteen years has been providing energy efficiency finance. And it has that it has those dual levers as well that in the Canadian model, which is the grants as well as the the, the, the low interest loans, but it also has the um, this ecosystem of uh, energy experts that sort of sort of effectively provide the guidance to the um, uh, to the homeowner at the start of the process around you know w- what sort of upgrades they should be contemplating, but also then does the verification at the end of the the the, the uh, actually the upgrades have been executed well and are delivering the performance that was promised. Um, there's lots of analogs there. Is that is that is that intentional? Or is that just the result of well, it's good policy making, so you kind of land in a similar sort of space. Yeah, it's a good question. I wonder if, um, if you know, they have been looking at the KFW model. I think part of the the reason that this this policy came out was that. Um, you know, giving $5,000 to someone to upgrade windows or insulation or, or heating sources is fine, but, but we'd be leaving a lot of savings on the table. And, and once you do that, then you got to go back to them two, three years down the road. It's much harder. And so an interest-free loan, uh, you know, coupled with that grant then does provide people the opportunity to go much deeper. And I think that, that policy making idea is, you know, once we're in there, let's let's really look at what needs to be done to this building and then let's let's give you the tools to make it happen. And that energy advisor is independent and, and you know provides mm. the expert advice. And I think that's people need that as well. Um, you know, they need to be, you know, need their hand held a little bit to kind of show them what the priorities could be and they're trained on treating the house as a system and, you know, those kinds of things. So um so yeah, I, I wonder if, you know, smart policy people were looking at that KFW model and, and thinking about how they could leverage that and, and kind of Canadianize it a bit. Well, it's also something we're thinking about here in terms of, you know, the, the, the benefits of doing an integrated approach to, to house upgrades because you actually, you know, for an appliance upgrade, if you, if you, if you know the thermal performance is also being upgraded, it, it sort of changes how you might size that appliance. Um, if you're doing the thermal mm-hmm. performance without, without considering things like, like airflow, it can have flow and issues. Um, for condensation and the, and the like, there are great benefits in, in in having a plan, even if you don't do it all at yeah. once, but understanding what those steps in the process will be. And um, we're thinking deeply about how we can set up that ecosystem of energy advisors here in Australia. So we, we'll be watching with great interest um, the progress of, uh, of, uh, of that program. Right. First Fuel is brought to you by the Energy Efficiency Council. 
a not-for-profit membership association for businesses, universities, governments and NGOs. The Council's mission is to unlock the potential of energy efficiency to deliver healthy, comfortable buildings, productive, competitive businesses and an affordable, reliable and sustainable energy system for Australia. To find out how your organisation can get involved, visit eec.org.au forward slash membership. You mentioned the uh, the Canadian Infrastructure Bank, and I believe it's $2 billion Canadian dollars that have been set aside for incentivising private sector commercial building upgrades. Do you want to just very briefly give us a sense of what the state of play is in terms of energy performance in the in the commercial building space in, in Canada and then what that program is is designed to do? So what they decided to do was, the first thing they did was they, 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 they tried to, so there's an independent bank called the Canada Infrastructure Bank, has $35 billion to invest. The government kind of puts the money through that, but it's separate and hand, hands on hands off from the government. And what they were trying to do is figure out how do we create a market for deeper energy retrofits mm-hmm. and how do we then um, encourage more the, like the class B and class C commercial buildings, not really the kind of class A big office towers yep. that, that are able to make these upgrades. And, um, and the idea was that if we could set the rules and we could actually define what it means to have to do a deeper re- energy retrofit and the type of um, uh, um, you know, commitments that you would need to make, the type of work that you need to get done and that kind of thing, we could set the rules and the, the, the Canada Infrastructure Bank could essentially finance these retrofits and make a return on that, then that would open up an entire pool of private sector capital. Mm. And that's where the real money is going to flow. You know, to you and I, Luke, like $2 billion is like... Seems like a lot of money. <laughs> more money we'll ever see <laughs> in our lives. But then you talk to these commercial investors and they're like, $2 billion. Like, oh, I don't get out of bed for less than 10 or $12 billion. Um, so, yeah. so, uh, but what it will do is it'll say, okay, private sector banks, you've just made these private sector commitments where you're going to decarbonize your entire portfolio by 2050. Mm-hmm. Where are you going to put your capital? Where are you going to put your money? And the last time I checked, banks don't have energy managers sitting in the in the branches just trying to figure out where to do retrofits. So along comes the Canada Infrastructure Bank. They work with a network of market aggregators and, and project generators, and they say, okay, we're going to invest in this. We're going to prove these case studies for these types of buildings. They do that, and eventually they get paid back. They can make money. Risk is really low. And along comes then the private sector bank and says, hey, we'll put in $2 billion. Then we'll put in 5 or 10 or 15 mm-hmm. And that's where we're really going to see the commercial building sector, you know, really kind of be transformed between now and the next decade, I would say. Uh, And excuse my ignorance, here in Australia, we have the National Australian Built Environment Rating System, and and there is a, that's paired with the federal government commercial building disclosure program, which is a very, it creates some transparency around a building's actual performance. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's, there is a mandatory disclosure at the point of sale of lease for, for buildings above a certain size. Is there any equivalent kind of disclosure regime in Canada? The disclosure the disclosure is a provincial jurisdiction and only one province has it, which right. is Ontario, where I live. Um, and I know others are trying to implement that. As far as the labeling at the time of sale, we have not had that yet. Uh, those, those programs have been... Um, we've tried them. We've tried to get there and, uh, and policymakers have been 
lobbied extensively by people who don't want to see that. Um, but but those those are coming. And, and I think the types of grant programs and financing programs you see now, again, will generate a lot of data so we can just sort of, yep. kind of get to get there. Because grants and, and incentives run out. What we ultimately have to get to is, is what, what you guys have. So it seems like you skipped that whole grants thing, went straight to the good policy and that's good. Good on you guys. Well, I mean, it's a, we should have a conversation about that offline because um, we've seen neighbours adopted by First New Zealand, and, and we've just seen it picked up in the United Kingdom as well. And so there's yeah. there's the opportunity there, you know, whether neighbours is the thing that gets adopted around the world. Um, that, that's something which there there is a lot of international interest in the lessons and the, the framework because that's been an incredibly successful and stable program in what has been, as we've just discussed, a fairly contested space. This is right. the neighbours is one of the things that has actually gone from strength to strength over the last uh, the last decade um, but that's another conversation yeah. for another time you had a third dot point which was around the, the sort of the industrial decarbonization space i understand that is not just energy efficiency and energy management it's kind of like um, accelerating kind of uh, investment in in um, bleeding edge technologies for the for the for the industrial industrial sector and there's maybe five billion in, in that fund is that right Corey? it was actually set up as three billion in december and then when the budget for the like the the federal budget came out in march they added another five so now it's eight billion wow. because i think they realize again these numbers that you and i will never see but three billion <laughs> not nowhere near what what is required to decarbonize the large final emitters. So yes, it's really set up for, for industrial um, uh, decarbonization, scaling up clean technology, and really kind of accelerating that industrial transformation amongst you know multiple different sectors. Um, on the energy efficiency side, we know that you know in places like Alberta, where our oil and gas sector is um, um, very prominent, they've had large final emitters uh, programs around energy efficiency and how to um, you know install energy management systems, and they've been oversubscribed. And there's lots of projects waiting to be funded. Um, there is a goal with the federal government to have 25% of all of our industrial output governed by an energy management system. And uh, we're nowhere near that. I think uh, estimates are between, you know, one and 3% right now. So, uh, so a lot of work has to be done in order to start to do that. So potentially there'll be some opportunities for certain sectors to start to implement energy management systems as, as part of their decarbonization plan. Yeah, it's interesting. And another parallel, there's been a lot of interest um, initially at the state level, but increasingly at the federal level here in Australia in supporting businesses to put those good energy management systems in place. Um, I understand mm-hmm. there's the, um, the ISO 50001 Ready Navigator that the Department of Energy developed. I believe that's been adopted in Canada. Yeah, so Natural Resources Canada uh, recognizes that. They, they, they came out with a funding program uh, in 2019, I think it was, yep. and, and that money's all run out um it was hugely successful and, and it was based on that so um so yeah so there, there's some more and more recognition in fact we get a lot of requests around this mm. not really from industry but from you know people in the policy space and and certainly um people in the civil service who really want to want to push this and um so i think there's a huge opportunity um and and we need to do some more work on it ourselves we need to figure out you know which policies we can start to push on so 
perhaps this net zero accelerator is the place where we, we start to get more engaged on an industrial energy efficiency. Well, I was certainly very conscious that um, for many years here in Australia, energy was incredibly cheap um, by global standards. Mm-hmm. And so there wasn't a great deal of incentive. Indeed, it was rational for many, even quite energy intensive organisations to kind of manage their energy use by effectively locking in the lowest unit cost as part of their procurement process, whether it was for electricity or gas, and then just forget about it and focus on other parts of the business. Um, right. the, that has that, that changed dramatically in, in 2017. Part of that was, you know, us um, exposing our East Coast gas market to inter- the international prices because we started exporting gas. Um, there was some shifts in um, uh, our electricity system that saw prices for electricity spike at around the same time. And so suddenly there was a laser-like focus, but not a lot of necessarily infrastructure in particularly smaller manufacturers and smaller energy-intensive companies. So I feel like we're, we're here in Australia, we're in this, where there's a lot of interest in the in the business community around, around building that sophistication, but you can't sort of turn on a dime and it does take time to, to, to build the, the training and the familiarity with things like ISO 50001 or, or often systems which are um, aligned with ISO 50 2001, but it's not necessarily the case that every company needs to get certified. It's just kind of having good practices in place and integrating that into the, the, the culture of the business. And we're just on that yeah, journey. Yeah, yeah. One of the one of the best success stories in a couple of provinces have done here is they've embedded these energy managers. So the utility basically pays for fifty percent of a person's time for a year or two years, and they just embed them in these companies. Yeah, right. And they basically find enough money to cover their salary for the next decade. <laughs> so they get hired on and, uh, and it's fantastic. Right. And so, you know, you're right. There isn't that, that kind of a, you probably, they probably don't, especially for the smaller or medium size. So they don't have the time and space to think about it, but they also don't have the experience. They don't have the people. Mm-hmm. So you, find, you figure out how to get those people trained up and get them in there. Um, and, and it's been really successful in kind of changing the culture of some of these places. Well, one of the exciting things we've been working on um, with the New South Wales government over the last uh, 18 months has actually been developing a, a training program for energy management system advisors, um, mm-hmm. which is sort of because there's not a lot of demand for energy management systems, even quite, you know, experienced people in the industry don't necessarily know, they don't know ISO 50001 like the back of their hand because they're just not being asked for it. And so we've been able to right. take, you know, um, professionals through that process. But interestingly, there's been a few sort of end users that have gone through it and have found it just as useful, and so so there's a there's a role for for building up the that energy manager internally within in the business. The um, the other thing that's interesting is as we designed it, we realised yes, you need to know energy management systems, but equally as important, co-equal, like you know you can't you can't leave this off is the ability to engage infect- effectively with an executive team and with a yes. board, uh, because you can know ISO fifty thousand and one inside out, but if you can't communicate it internally and kind of build that buy-in like it's yeah. it's it's actually not it, it's not going to go anywhere and so we spend a significant chunk of that training on kind of just engagement telling the story and making sure right, that the, the, right. the that communication piece is is really landing which is is proving yeah. incredibly effective yeah yeah absolutely it's um they need sales training for the internal buy-in absolutely you know on our end one of the things in canada that's interesting um around this is that you know going back to the early part of the conversation around carbon pricing is i do think the c-suite is going to pay a little more attention to this because in canada the carbon price will be rising considerably between now and 2030 up to 170 dollars a ton and at that point it's going to be 
uh, you're, people are just going to start seeing their bills, you know, continually to go up. So if you combine that with efforts to then engage energy managers, then, you know, you're starting to solve a problem rather than trying to sell something that they don't know they even have a problem. So it is going to be very interesting over the next little while. I really hope that it's not just sticker shock and then reaction, negative reaction to it, but that it's like a concerted effort to kind of support Canadian businesses address these kinds of things, knowing that the price is continuing to go up. And a big part of that is going to be workforce development. And we're going to need more people trained up and getting in there and doing this, you know, purposeful mission oriented type work. I'm pretty confident that listeners around the country just fell off their seat when they heard the words $170 a ton. (laughs) 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 Yeah. Well, 2030 is a long way away. So we'll see if, (laughs) There's a lot of political cycles between now and then. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. All right, Corey, we're uh, almost out of time, but I just have one last question, and it goes to something you mentioned right at the start of our conversation, which was around the role of Efficiency Canada in activating a network of energy efficiency advocates, people that either have energy efficiency as their whole job or part of their job, and um, encouraging them to become politi- politically active and engaged on the the topic of energy efficiency. I know you've had a a great deal of success with that. Do you want to just round out our conversation by uh, giving us a a, a brief sense of uh, that element of Efficiency Canada's role? Sure, yeah. In our perspective, we we kind of ripped a page out of our, you know, environmental NGO pass and tried Mm -hmm. to think about how to create this this political constituency. And so what we do is, um, you know, we have a, 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 a very simple database and system. We have uh, almost 6,000 people in our database and we activate them when we need them. And so, Mm. you know, the types of investments that we're seeing uh, from the federal government, a large part of that, and we've heard that this is the reason, is that people are reaching out to their member of parliament. They're writing letters. They're actually Mm. meeting with them. And we train people on how to have meetings with their elected official. We train them on how to tell their story so that they can go in and say, hey, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm Mary. I own this, this, uh, this insulation company last year we were five people because of these policies we're 15 people now i had to buy an extra van if you want to come and cut a ribbon uh, you know at our our business anytime (laughs) come by and it's those kinds of things and people tell these amazing stories and that's what gets that's what sticks with policymakers we could throw every stat we want at them but a a constituent in their writing who's telling the story about creating jobs that's what they're going to remember so we really try and that and kind of organize people and mobilize them when we need them to kind of get the action we need. And then when we see that policy, it's just kind of a feedback loop because then people want to get more involved and engage when they see the wins. Yeah, and actually, and when policy is announced, getting that positive feedback from their communities, so people are actually taking notice and, and um, giving them a big thumbs up and for actually getting it done, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, Corey, we, we are out of time. Um, it has been an absolute pleasure uh, comparing notes today and I'm really excited to make the connection with Efficiency Canada over the last few months. Um, There's a lot of similarities um, obviously between Canada and Australia and the journey that we're on um, but also similarities between our organisations. 
as well. Yeah. And I, I, I'm yeah. sensing a, uh, a love of, of bad jokes related to energy efficiency as well. So I um, look forward to exploring <laughs> that. The only thing I cared about this whole webinar was how cool the title was. You guys are so clever. I got to join this. So no, thank you, Luke. I, mean, I really do appreciate it. It was such a great chance to kind of share our, our, our story with you and to keep that dialogue going. And, and you know, international cooperation, this is the only way we're going to solve these big issues. And so, and that's built on relationships. So I'm really glad that we can uh, can start this relationship together. All right. Well, that wraps up this episode of First Fuel. If you have comments, you can find us on Twitter. Efficiency Canada is at Efficiency Can, and my handle is at Luke Menzel. And to keep up to date on the latest in energy efficiency, energy management demand response, you can follow the Energy Efficiency Council at EE Council. If Twitter is not your thing, you can email the team. The address is firstfuel at eec.org.au. And make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to First Fuel in your podcast app of choice. And to learn more about the show, including upcoming live recordings with great international guests like Corey, visit eec.org.au forward slash podcasts. But for now, it's goodbye from us and we'll catch you soon.